Hey there, I'm Jennifer Thompson, and today we have a special treat for you. I will be doing an interview for Warwick's of La Jolla. Warwick's is one of the oldest bookstores in the nation, and it is fantastic. If you have a chance to go visit, I recommend it. In fact, buy all of their books. Every book they have is good, including this one. All right, let's listen. Sophie, this is such a pleasure. You're such an incredible writer. I absolutely loved Cursed Bread. So let's tell our listeners a little bit about you and then we'll dive right in. Sophie McIntosh is the author of Blue Ticket and The Water Cure, which won the 2019 Betty Trask Award and was long listed for the 2018 Man Booker Prize. In 2016, she won the White Review Short Story Prize and the Virago Stylist Short Story Competition. This book is so good. It's about obsession. Um, it's also based on a real unsolved mystery from 1951 about a mass poisoning of a French village. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the book and how you came to the idea of writing Cursed Bread? Yeah, so Cursed Bread, it is based on a true story, like you said. Um, it is about um, a mass poisoning of a village in France in 1951. Um, during this mass poisoning, the whole town suffered violent hallucinations. Um, it, it, was quite, it was quite a tragedy. Um, people ended up in hospital and seven people died. And I remember reading about it and I've always been really um, interested in kind of mass poisonings and sort of instances of mass hysteria and just the idea of a town which is suddenly, you know, completely overtaken by hallucinations, everything kind of changing in a second. It was just it was so strange, especially because it's never really been solved. Um, mm. Title Case Bread comes from the, uh, the the name of the event, which is uh, Le Pan Maudit, so that literally translates to Case Bread, because <laughs> um, they now oh. think probably caused by poisoned flour. Um, but there are some other theories about it, and it was one of these other theories that I kind of decided to pursue. And actually, the book itself, the poisoning is almost more of a backdrop for what happens, because the main kind of part of the story is um, this obsessive relationship between the baker's wife, Elodie, and the new couple who arrive in the town. So a couple mm -hmm. arrives in a sleepy French town and she becomes closer to them and it's kind of following the events that lead up to the poisoning. And also um, there is some part of reflecting on that summer as well. And Elodie is such a wonderful character. Uh, first of all, I love her name. All of the names in the book are fantastic. And I'd like to ask you a little bit about how you came up with naming conventions. But let's, let's talk more about Elodie and like who she is. So she's obsessed. She just wants so much to be, to feel needed, to feel part of something, to feel desired. So talk to us a little bit about how this character came to be. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I started writing the story, first of all, through the voice of the other character who's kind of at the heart of the book, Violet. Um, mm. Then I switched to Elodie because writing it through Violet's point of view wasn't coming alive. And I had this idea for Baker's wife, who's kind of um, felt very stuck in her existence. We'd always wanted something more, but because of kind of the conventions of the age, and where she was living and kind of her upbringing had never really been able to have the life that she wanted. Mm. And the more time I spent with her, the more I realized she was the actually interesting character, like a character who really, really wants, who has this incredible like lust for life and passion 
and these appetites which have never really been allowed to flourish or to be filled. So I think, you know, when these appetites aren't allowed to be filled or aren't allowed to flourish, they can go in a dark direction. And so she's always been a person who has wanted something and has been waiting for some event to, you know, completely change her life and transform who she is. And then the arrival of the couple kind of sparks that. Um, but she was a really interesting character to spend time with and to think about, you know, the idea of you know, why shouldn't a sort of a baker's wife in a small town in France in the 50s want more, want this like life, like beauty and passion. And if you're not kind of able to achieve that, like, you know, what can that do to you? What can I do to a person? Yeah. Well, the, the lengths we'll go or the things that we allow ourselves to do that we maybe, we know it's a bad idea. Like there are so many situations where they, I think sort of manipulate her into doing things, but they don't have to try very hard, you know, to become this person who maybe in her eyes is getting attention. But, you know, we're probably all capable of going to dark places when we feel so lost, right? She's lost herself. No, completely. Like she's not, she's kind of been an unfulfilling marriage. Her life Mm -hmm. hasn't been like how she's wanted. She's really missing like intimacy and connection and it can be kind of intoxicating when you've missed that and then something sort of promises to give that to you you can kind of really you know you can really put yourself in a lot of harm and yeah uh, you know harm way and you know you could really you could really like you said like do a lot of like quite desperate things and I think the novel like really charts that journey for her she does feel desperate. I think that's a good word. She feels desperate for attention and excitement, really. That's what she's lacking even more than feeling needed, maybe, is excitement. Yeah, yeah. I find like, obviously, using the word desperation, it's so fitting, but I feel bad almost because it's like, you know, like, why shouldn't we want, why shouldn't we want, you know, she's just a person with these appetites. Um, but there is like a real, almost kind of a darkness in how she flings herself at them and how she doesn't mm. really know you know, what will fill them, but she's like kind of willing to try anything. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say that she's willing to try anything. And these people are very intoxicating. I mean, they're very glamorous and, and I love the name Violet too, which sounds very close to violent. Was that on purpose? Actually was not, but I've heard that recently before. And I was like, Oh, totally right. I you know what? The names, the characters kind of came to me, like very, very early on, like the main characters, I find it actually really hard to name characters. I know you said we skip a more about this, but I find it hard to name characters. So to have like two kind of fully fledged names come almost like out of nowhere. And I was like, oh yeah, Elodie and Violet. That's it. Anyone else. Yeah. Are, yeah. <laughs> so Elodie, where, where did you get that name? Did it just come out of nowhere or did were you inspired? Yeah, I think it just sort of came out. I think I just was like, probably it's a pretty name. <laughs> and and it, yeah, it's just like that I, I, I'm actually not even sure what it means. But I think I, I remember, I think I read somewhere like someone had, someone who reviewed it had sort of attached a significance to it, but I can't quite remember what that was. Hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it just seems so kind of classically French and like something really beautiful and mm-hmm. melodic. Um, almost like a name at odds with kind of her life as she sees it, which, you know, it's quite mundane. Um, she's just, you know, in the bakery a lot, um, feeling unfulfilled. One of the things I liked too that I noted is 
a lot of people are referred to the characters don't really have names. There's Madame M, there's the grocer's wife, there's the ambassador. Like they're all sort of like brought onto the stage by their title or their husband's title. And what drove you to sort of have that very um, almost formal naming convention for all these characters? Because so much of the action is really focused on um, Elodie and Violet, I think I wanted to kind of get the sense of her single-mindedness. Like the others don't need to have names to her because they're just sort of people moving around her. They're shapes. Um, there are parts where like the other people are named by characters who yeah. are not Elodie, but for her, they don't, they always don't exist. You know, they are just kind of there. They're just um, sort of characters in this drama she's living. They are just kind of, um, you know, just like um, elements in set piece. And so I kind of really just wanted to focus super on her, you know, her, her total single-mindedness, how she's so absorbed in Violet that everyone else might not exist. And I think as well, I wanted to kind of give the sense of a place out of time because even mm. though it's, it's based on a true story, but I've really gone quite loose with it. And that sense of not really wanting to situate it in time or place too much, that sense of kind of wanting to get a, a feel that it could be a town anywhere, that this could happen in many places, almost like a kind of fable aspect something that really unmoors it from a sense of being like, okay, we're in a French village in 1950. I wanted someone to read it and think, oh, like, where are we? That, that sense of kind of dis, dis, um, disorientation. And you absolutely achieved that. And there were times when I had to remind myself what era we're in and where we are, because you did such a good job of bringing us to this like fantastical place. And like this mass hysteria that happens was kind of happening all along. Like the whole town is really obsessed with Violet and the ambassador, you know, because they're exotic and they're new and they're different. And uh, so you did a great job of, in some, some cases, like Elodie is the sane one. She's the one who just, you know, wants to have a friendship with these people and the rest of the town is like can't wait to get a bite if you will mm. they can't wait to like see their house or you know in in some cases like touch their underwear right like to be <laughs> maybe a little more than i need to tell everyone <laughs> everyone's quite like, hungry i think in this book everyone yeah. is hungry for hunger and i think a lot of that is because you know it, you know it happened in 1951 and that's so close to the end of second world war you know there's a sense of when I was writing it, I was like, well, you know, actually they would have been hungry for a long time. You know, the world has been, they've had this massive trauma and then there's this other trauma coming that they don't know about. The sense of a town which is still in a state of kind of grief and sort of terror and how that could leave them ripe for, you know, another catastrophe. Indeed, indeed. I want to read the last paragraph of the book jacket because it's so good. This description, and honestly, everyone should buy this book. It is such a good book. I couldn't put it down. I literally read it in one sitting till I could finally close the last page and go to sleep. <laughs> Audacious and mesmerizing, Cursed Bread is a fevered confession, an entry into memory's hall of mirrors, and an erotic fable of transformation. Sophie McIntosh spins a darkly gleaming tale of a town gripped by hysteria, envy like poison in the blood, and desire that burns and consumes. Wow, like that really kind of wraps up how the, the experience of reading this book for me, like really has the, like all of those fantastical elements. 
is this typical? I haven't read your first two books. Is this book typical to your writing style or was this something new for you? I think it's fairly typical um, as my first two books were more speculative or kind of, yeah, more towards a kind of like sci-fi kind of thing. But um, so it did feel like a departure for your writing historical fiction. But it was quite interesting how actually when you start writing it, like as an author, you do, you know, you have a style. It's my third book, so it's kind of that sense of you realise you return to the themes you love and you re return to the kind of way of writing you, you love. And I kind of, I, re I really believe in the book as like a visceral, aesthetic experience too. You know, I, I, a tactile experience, a central one. I want the readers to really feel it and to be able to like touch it and sense it. Like every, I, I want them to feel like really immersed. Um, and with this one, you know, it's quite claustrophobic as well. Um, but <laughs> when I, you know, I was reading it back and I was like, well, actually that's kind of what I wanted to do. <laughs> Um, claustrophobic and very lush and tactile. I would say that is kind of um, characteristic of my work so far. It, it is funny, like, you know, being on the third book and being like, oh, I do, I have a style. <laughs> I, I, have, I, have. <laughs> I think that happens for a lot of authors too, where they don't realize, oh, I do, I have a style, I have a brand, here we are. Yours is, it's dark, but it's deeply human, like digging into the psyche of human nature, you know, and, and desire. Is that something that you are interested in in general when your storytelling is like going places that maybe some people are afraid to go? Um, yeah, I definitely think I'm interested in that for sure. Like desire always pulls me back in all the books. Um, even if it's not kind of outwardly about lust, um, that idea of kind of wanting something and wanting it so badly that you'll really go to, to any lengths to get there is, is something very compelling to me. And I think, yeah, I really love what you said then about kind of um, like humanness and humanity, because I think that really delving into those dark, horrible places, it's kind of, that is a kind of a way of finding self-knowledge. I'm just, I'm interested in kind of what comes out of those spaces, even though I think, Oh, maybe I should write a sort of a more cheerful book. <laughs> um, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm actually um, like dark in my day to day, but I just have this fascination with these spaces in our life where you know we kind of really are almost strangers to ourselves, but also really discover ourselves. These kind of moments of shame, these moments of desire, these moments of which have a kind of horrible truth to them. You know, what I mean, in the sense of finding ourselves through these um dark and painful but transcendent experiences absolutely that makes me think of the opening to this book which is so good i was hooked instantly so i find it fascinating that you were you know one of my questions was going to be what did you write first did you write this in the beginning but since you changed the perspective and the you know who's telling the story it went from violet to elodie clearly you wrote it later when she's talking to the reader, so Elodie is talking to the reader and she's like, you know, I could tell this story to make it the way I want it to be, to what the story I want to tell, but instead I'm going to tell the truth. That was a very interesting and captivating way because we know something dark is about to happen, right? And we trust her because she's told us, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm going to give it to you the way it happened, no matter how shameful that might be. And it did feel like shame came out in how she's telling the story, but yet also she's not ashamed to let you know that she, that this happened, you know, even if she'd like to change it. Talk to us about writing that scene and 
Did you have to get to know Elodie before you could write that piece, that opening? I think that the, the first draft I did, the one where I basically wrote half a novel in Violet's perspective and then threw it away, although it mm. was very powerful wow. for me. <laughs> I, it was the most useful thing I could have done because it got me into the town. It got me thinking about Elodie as a character. It got me realizing that she was the one I wanted to tell the story through. And it also really opened it up for me, this idea of this is a story that can be told from many different ways and many different perspectives. And we as readers, we implicitly trust the narrator, but we're not always right to trust the narrator. Um, we have this sort of instinctive drive to, but actually that can be played with a bit. And so that mm -hmm. writing of this whole 30,000 words in a totally different perspective and throwing it out and, you know, feeling sad about a few months of, of work gone, I actually realized more and more that was the kind of the most important work because mm. it, it taught me so much about what was the story I wanted to tell, what was the really interesting story to tell of the relationship between the women, um, what was kind of how we can play with these narrative forms how we can use the unreliability and this idea of Elodie as a storyteller, which recurs throughout the book in many different ways. She's the confidant of the village, of the town. Um, she tells herself stories, she tells us stories, she remembers. Mm. Kind of this idea of, you know, narrative itself being a technique and a way that can be reflected in the form and how we could play with that. It, it was quite a learning experience. So yeah, writing that first page and having Elodie mm. lay it all out for us. And we really trust her. We think, okay, so she's been telling some lies. There's some things happening that we don't know about, um, but we're going to kind of go on this journey with her. And then possibly as readers having doubts in our mind, being like, well, actually, what's actually happening? Like, how much, yeah. can, we, how much can we trust the narrator? Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, can we trust her? Like, is she a trustworthy narrator? <laughs> I don't at times, I'm like, you have to, everyone has to make their minds up for themselves about how much you can. And I think there's so much in the book that can be, it's funny because as a, as a writer, I'm like, I, I know, but at the same time, you know, there's so much in the book about memory and about, you know, almost like stealing people's memories and hoarding these memories, making up new things based on a memory, um, remembering things, misremembering things, ruminating. Everything kind of gets jumbled up and you start to question like, what is fact and what is fiction? And, you know, our own memories, as people are unreliable often, we can, you know, we can misremember even a simple memory. Um, so this idea of not just the narration, but also like, you know, what is real? <laughs> Sorry, I'm going on like way out of time now. <laughs> and then throughout the book, there's some wild cards. Like there's some things that happen that are just like sort of out in left field, like the horses and, you know, Violet is very much bringing Elodie into her world and sort of showing her things that are very like fantastical. Talk to us about like, were you trying to lead the reader in a certain direction? Were you trying to throw the reader off? Like where did those things come into play in your narrative? I wanted to I give the impression of, you know, a town that is on the verge of something, something big. And there are these strange events happening um they're not imagined events you know the, the the town there were strange things happening in the town they're not supernatural they're kind of i think things that would normally just be written off as tragedies or as a strange occurrence um mm -hmm. but in the 
context of what's actually happening, they become malevolent, you know, um, yeah, these events like the horses, that could be just, it's not, it's, it's quite a horrible thing to happen, but it's not, you know, spooky necessarily. But in the context of the new arrivals, this sort of trauma bubbling under the surface, um, Elodie's sort of fracturing obsession, there's suddenly mm-hmm. all these things which could be just normal parts of the town life start to take on this sort of significance. And I wanted them, you know, to lead up to this sort of this the, the main event, the, the the tragedy, which we know is foreshadowing them the whole time. We know it because Elodie's told us. Yeah. Did those things actually happen when you were doing research on the town? Did um, the, the case of the horses and, and the bonfire, were those real events? No, totally fictional. I, I went very fictional on this because, you know, it, the thing is, it is a true event. And so um, mm-hmm. I thought I, I either have to go like, to a really faithful retelling or mm-hmm. I springboard for something new because, um, you know, there's a certain kind of ethics, I think, in using an event like this. Um, so I wanted to use it as more of a springboard for an idea. And so um, these elements are kind of completely made up. Nice. I, I figured they were, but I thought, oh, I should ask. I'm not I'm not quite sure. They almost seem like, you know, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of how Violet is going to react to each new odd thing that this couple brings to her. Um, and I don't want to give anything away to our readers, so I'm being maybe a little bit cryptic, but <laughs> that's on purpose. Read the book. It, it definitely felt like we were you were creating tension in a way of like, how is she going to respond next to this next thing that that's happening? And also just creating a feeling in the town. But were you intentionally guiding the reader to question her decision-making skills? I think that's a really interesting way to look at it, for sure, because, um, yeah, everything they throw at her, she kind of just takes it in stride, really. Um, right. I think of the relationship between the three of them as being almost a sort of series of tests. They're kind of toying with her the whole way and becomes a bit more extreme. You know, this idea of, that again, that idea of how much will you do for your hunger? How much will mm. you want? and your loneliness, um, how far will you go? And they're very aware of that. They are two people who, you know, don't necessarily have her best intentions at heart, two people who are very much like, okay, well, if you want us, like, how far will you go? (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. You know, as as readers, we're kind of seeing like, Elodie, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Both of us so in her head that maybe we're kind of almost there with her and it's only afterwards we're like, wow, she really, she really did do that. And yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's hard to talk about that. Like, she, really, she really went there. <laughs> and, and I love her for it too, because I think a lot of times that's, you know, we want to follow those, those dark places that we're, you know, mystery, I think is important, right? It's important in life. And if you have none, life can become very boring. And that's what we have as a case of someone whose life became very boring. So you said that you sp- yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yes, please. But okay, well, it, it, that kind of that sense of relief as well that they almost give her permission to go there too. Like there was a, a bit. Um, I'm paraphrasing my own book, but you know, she talks about shame as a kind of transformative force and that idea of yeah, relief there as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you can it totally. Um, <laughs> it's your book, so <laughs> we want to hear all about it. How long did it take you to write this book? Um, it was quite fast because I, I wrote most of it during lockdown. So I think mm. I, I wrote the first draft in, well, I, I wrote actually 
um, the whole thing pretty much except for kind of edits with my editor um, I, in about a year, which it seemed like a pretty long year because it was a long, <laughs> uh, a long time, but it was more like two years to write. Um, so it did sort of speed the process, but I think, you know, it was a really intense process. And I suppose like knowing myself more as a writer and, you know, having having this story there and um, once I kind of hit upon the fact that Elodie was telling it, it really um, came together really, really fast for me. Mm. One, year is, mm. one year is not my usual. Uh, my book that I'm working on now has been way more than it. <laughs> I'd love to hear a little bit about your writing process and what that looks like for you. I can't tell if it's heartening or disheartening. It's really, really messy. Um, no. I am like... It's heartening, by the way. <laughs> so messy. Um, I have learned to kind of embrace the the waste like like I've said the kind of the first thirty thousand words that I threw away learning to em- embrace it that will happen pretty much every time annoyingly um yeah like at, at the moment for example I, I wrote a first draft of the book I'm working on now and I've kind of gone back to it and being like okay there's maybe like like ten paragraphs in here that I can use it's time to sort of start from the beginning and I'm gonna do it all differently so I'm very I'm very all about trying things out practically and editing and editing and editing it's like nowhere near effortless every word has mm. really um I've really thought about every draft and every you know every kind of way I can approach something and I, I do find it fun you know that idea of it's, it's almost like throwing paint at a canvas and seeing what will stick and then you kind of something a shape emerges and suddenly you're like oh I was trying to paint that shape all along <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> are you the kind of writer who has to get like a, a, a sentence a paragraph or even a chapter right before you move on or can you say okay I know that's not right but I'm going to get back to it and move forward Totally. I think if I kind of go back to something too much, I will just stay there. I will go over and over and over in it. I am a perfectionist and I will do that later on in the draft, but I'm just very, get my head down, get to the end of it. I think, um, yeah, my first draft for um, Case Bread, I probably wrote in two to three months, but it was super, super rough. Like just, I was all about getting the words on the page, getting mm. to the end and then, you know, well, getting to halfway through. <laughs> but, you know, that, that sense of kind of, um, just wanting to get something there because it's I find it very intimidating even now to think about writing an entire book <laughs> even oh. though <laughs> it's almost like I love them. that you s- <laughs> would say that again you're tricking yourself into you're tricking yourself into finishing all those words and then being like okay now I have them I can I can work with this but yeah mm-hmm Mm-hmm. That's to me, that feels really beautiful, right? Because we, you know, a lot of our listeners are indeed writers, a lot of readers too, but we're fascinated by the writing process and this idea that you didn't sit down and know exactly how the book was going to unfold and you had to just follow it and get it out and then go back um, is, is good. It's good for us to hear those of us who haven't actually finished a book because it does feel daunting, right? It's like, how really a whole book? <laughs> what about the editing process? Did anything surprising come out of the editing process? I think the main thing I find surprising is just how late in the game things can change. And again, I don't know if this is disheartening or heartening. Um, but yeah, I just remember 
um, before I sent it to my agent, kind of doing a last draft and thinking, great, we're almost there, it's almost done. And then suddenly sort of writing a scene, I can't even remember which one, but um, or writing even a paragraph and some, writing it and being like, oh, this is a step up. This is really expanding on something I've been trying to articulate. I've somehow leveled up a little bit. <laughs> and mm. actually, this is better than what's happened before. So I need to now, I need to now follow this. And it's kind of annoying, um, but I do find it, I think it's just that sense of writing yourself, you write yourself into a story, the more you do it, like the more time you spend with the story, the more times you go over and over it. There's got to be a point, obviously, where you're just fiddling with it a bit, but um, the sense of just getting yeah. deep into the story and really figuring out like what I'm doing. And yeah, annoyingly, that sometimes can happen at quite a late stage, but I think, it, I think it's good still. <laughs> Well, it's really good when it comes out great, which this book did. Are you a huge reader? Yeah, I do. I do really love reading. Um, yeah. Do you would... read? Do you allow yourself to read while you're writing, while you're enmeshed in the in the writing of a book? Oh, that is a great question. Um, yeah, I do. It depends. I, my tastes kind of change. I think when I'm really deep in a first draft, I kind of gravitate to nonfiction or like books that are very dissimilar from mine maybe mm. kind of a slight fear of being influenced stuff but I think it's also just nice to have a break when you're really deep in like fiction fiction land um yeah yeah, yeah. very it's cool like reading someone else's world when you're really you know enmeshed in your own world and that's kind of what you're getting up and thinking about all day um it almost feels sort of intrusive but I do I do love reading <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking about this in the green room before, like, I'm very interested in all the people who endorse the book, because if they loved it, I, my guess is I'm going to like their work. So I plan to go out and check out some of these authors. And you had mentioned, was it Megan Nolan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's an amazing writer. Um, yeah, her book, Acts of Desperation, actually is such an amazing look at like toxic relationships and obsession, which is obviously very relevant um, to Kiss Bread, um, and a more contemporary take on on it but she writes with a real um sort of honesty that I really mm. love I think what I loved most about your writing is there's this rawness but this this willingness to go super dark like you know we talked about into the human psyche and it just feels so refreshing I don't know if you ever watched Twin Peaks the series but yeah. I got a sense of that kind of storytelling into like the real dark underbelly and the hidden corners of the human psyche. Like you go there so well, but yet it never once does it ever feel like it's dark or, or too heady or heavy even. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's really hard to kind of write something so claustrophobic without kind of, I guess, over-wrecking it. And yeah, that idea of, I guess, what's lying under it every day, because at the end of the day, it's a, a lovely French town. You know, there's so many bits in the book emphasizing, you know, it's beautiful, it's got markets, it's got lovely cobbled streets. Um, and then thinking, of, and, you know, everyone is kind of going about their daily life, and buying bread from the bakers, um, you know, being referred to, you know, as the grocer's wife, it, it, almost like a, almost like a kind of this really pastoral scene of a town. And yeah. then you have yeah. all this underneath, you have all these traumas all these grievances all these secret sadnesses and hungers 
just under the surface. And I really wanted to like bring, bring that out. Oh, and you did that so well. And the levity that you also did so well was, you know, just talking about the love of the bread, right? So the baker's wife, you know, they spend a lot of time putting love and care into making the best bread, the perfect bread. And, you know, that's really part of the storytelling is getting, you know, into something so simple as a loaf of bread, but yet it, the way you tell it adds, I think, this freshness to it that was really fun to read. Thank you. Yeah, I really actually got into researching bread in France I was, when I was writing I was going to ask, were you making any bread? Did you make bread while you were writing this book? Oh, do you know what? When I was um, when I was in lockdown, I actually when I wrote the book, I actually did not have a functioning oven. So everyone around me in London was creating these incredible sourdoughs. And I'm sure in the States too, amazing sourdoughs. Everyone was getting super into it. <laughs> I could not cook any bread at all. I had no oven. I think at one point I got so desperate to try getting on the bread making train um, that I had a barbecue in the garden and I literally put like a loaf in a pan and put it in the barbecue. I actually made an incredible loaf of bread. Um, <laughs> That's wow, awesome. I was thinking so much. I mean, I love actually baking. I love cooking too. So to be able to write about food in this very tactile way was also like very you know, very absorbing for me, but, um, you know, this wormhole of going into the history of, of bread in France, like obviously it's a massive kind of has cultural significance. Um, and actually at the time, like flour would have been distributed by the States and, yeah. you know, bread was really kind of an extension of the state in a way, like, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the, the flour being kind of distributed in that way. The bread is like symbolic cultural object to think like, oh, the bread could be the thing that has caused this tragedy is almost, you know, it's almost quite like sacrilegious thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got that right. Like here in America, like all of my friends wanted, needed flour and we couldn't get flour. So we were like sharing resources and restaurants were selling flour. And I have to admit, I bought 40 pounds worth of flour and I think I still have 30 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I think partner like running to the shop to try and find some flour and like coming back and he paid like five pounds for a bag. And I was like, normally it's about ATP. <laughs> <laughs> We're willing to do anything. Don't take our bread from us. Well, this book was just absolutely wonderful. I can't wait to read all of your work. You have such a, an, an incredible voice and this ability to get to the heart of, you know, who we are and what drives us. So again, thank you so much for writing Cursed Bread. The cover is super interesting because it's so different than what was released in the UK. Do you have that, that cover available? Ooh, I, had See, have I should have asked you. <laughs> People, look it up, listeners. Like this one is very classical. You know, it has the very Rembrandt feel to it, like a still life of the bread and the wine. Um, and yet it's a little off, just slightly. Yeah, I actually so love, the, I love the glossy sort of hallucinogenic circle almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a spot glass on it that kind of draws your attention in an interesting way. Well, I think Julia will probably join us. Um, so you're working on another book currently, you said, you just mentioned. When do you think that will be available for sale? <laughs> I, said, no, I'm still I know, here. we're jumping to the next book. <laughs> <laughs> Going slowly, like, yeah, I, I, once I've finished it, I'll figure it out. But again, it's one of those 
shape-shifting novels where I'm like oh I was writing about this and suddenly I'm like I'm not writing about that at all <laughs> I thought I was writing about bread but I was actually writing about obsessive desire <laughs> nice quite what this one is about. <laughs> well we will wait patiently for your what will be your fourth book <laughs> yeah fourth book wow still feeling what? amazing even as as I thought great conversation I mean to circled Thank into you. so many great discussions that we could spin off on for another hour I think um one of them being well first of all I was in the background doing something um so I missed the very first part of the conversation and I can't and if you've already talked about this just tell me and I'll rewatch the video <laughs> but Sophie how how did this idea come to you where where did this story where did you see this story did you guys already cover that okay yeah never mind that i will i will go back and look at the video because i missed it because i was in the background trying to get a setup on doing some other things so i'll go back and look at that since you already covered it um just one of my curiosities but talking you guys um circled into the um unreliable narrator discussion and, mm. and like you were talking about how when you um are introduced to somebody at the beginning you just automatically believe them um for whatever reason that we do as readers but amanda has a question on here so elodie's brief encounter with the photographer was so sad how mm. did you decide to bring that character she says anytime a photographer shows up in a story it makes you wonder about if things are not as they seem speaking of unreliability of narration great question yeah yeah that's so interesting because actually um i almost saw her interactions with the photographer is kind of positive <laughs> and I was like what does that say about me <laughs> I don't know there's a sense of kind of um I guess like for the first time she's not um you know she she's kind of not being she's being toyed with but she kind of has a bit more agency I guess that sense of reaching some kind of um self-actualization like she's kind of doing it because she wants to and she's kind of not tied to these narratives that she's learned to kind of rely on. Um, but it is a strange, it's still a really strange relationship. Like, yes, I, I kind of think like, maybe I should have given her a very, like, it would have been nice to give her a more explicitly healthy relationship and, you know, I, be happy. I totally, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, Sophie, but yeah. I, I totally disagree with Amanda that it, it wasn't sad. Like I get where she's coming from. It's sad that like, okay, she didn't get the prince, right? We didn't get our Disney ending, but, that's not what kind of book this is. This And she did have agency in that scene because suddenly everything she has always wanted came to fruition and being desired and being beautiful and being in front of the camera, like all of it I thought was really perfect. Um, definitely don't question that. The sense right the book, because um, I was thinking, I was thinking a lot about kind of obviously voyeurism and the sense that she's, so I'm going off on a tangent, <laughs> just okay, but the sense that she's always like very, far away from her desires you know she's watching them she's not actually participating and for the first time she kind of is participating like she's not just behind the lens she's actually like she's she's there in the moment and it's just one moment but it's okay like one moment could be this sort of element this this place of like healing for her definitely so we have another question from barbara which just kind of circles around to the pandemic and we're talking about everybody baking bread and <laughs> cursing that um not being able to break <laughs> bread so barbara wants to know did you choose this title 
And was it your first choice? <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. This was the title that um, I, I couldn't imagine calling it anything else, but simply just because the case in France is called Le Pan Maudit, which literally translates to cursed bread. So when I read that, I was like, cursed bread. I mean, it has to be, has to be cursed bread. Slightly controversial. I think my, yeah, I remember I'm having a chat with some UK publishing team and they were like, oh, cursed bread is very unappetizing. And I was like, I can't, I cannot change it. Like it is like, it's always been cursed bread to me. Like just, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, I can't imagine it being different. <laughs> yeah. And that's, but that's sometimes like the evolution of books and titles and book covers and everything. It's sometimes it's, but. Um, I'm actually very bad at titles. Like the water cure was not the first title. I went through several titles, um, which were kind of, terrible i think like one of the one of the first ones for the water was leviathan <laughs> i mean very different very different feel very different feel very yeah. different feel but it's such a perfect time what to and what when you hit on something like water cure when you hit on it did it was it like oh that's it or did it take a little no when i when i hit on the water cure i was like it's there it's the it's the book it's the it's the it's the, it's the book awesome well so jennifer you mentioned the um women's prize we will be keeping i think we have a couple weeks to wait to see if that's a we will be like fingers crossed and doing all of the things we need to do because it definitely needs to be on that short list um i want to thank doubleday for allowing us to do this conversation today i love your publisher i love everybody there so thank you for that sophie thank you so much for your time well thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute joy and yeah i'm really really happy for your support to be really to appreciate it <laughs> oh, we have something. Let's see. Um, before I before I let you go, we have a couple more things coming in about um, it, there's a little delay with Facebook. So that's why they just got this. So that's why I'm going to bring this in, even though I was just wrapping up and I'll wrap up in a second. So Amanda saying, I guess you're right, Jennifer. It wasn't necessarily sad. It reminds her of the story by they might be giants that says no one in the world ever gets what they want. And that is beautiful. and we get what we yeah. everybody <laughs> dies frustrated and sad. And that is beautiful. Oh, they might be giants is going to be here in San Diego this weekend. Oh, yeah, just as an aside. <laughs> and then Barbara says, thank you. Um, the title intrigued her immediately. So she says, thank you about that. So yeah, mm. it's a really, it's a really good title. So with that, I was wrapping up. Um, Jennifer, as always, thank you for another great conversation. And Sophie, all the best to you. And we will be thinking great thoughts in a couple of weeks. So bye, yep, everybody. We're, we're with you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye.